This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Dr. Bob Roberts, Jr., welcome to Viral Jesus. I thought everybody would be excited. Are you kidding? I had people freaking out on me. They loved it when I worked with Muslims around the world. I thought they'd love it when I worked with the Muslims that were near me. Uh-uh. We started getting called the Muslims Church. We lost a few hundred people. And so when we went through that, I thought, well, we need to go ahead. By that time, our church was starting to become gradually multi-ethnic. But I said, you know what? We need to really go full bore. From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. I was reading an article by NPR called What It Means to Be a Muslim in America After 9-11. And today we are going to talk about religious freedom, but that doesn't just mean my religious freedom, right? Like that has to be religious freedom for everyone. Did you know that hate crimes against Muslims spiked 500% from 2000 to 2009, according to data from Brown University? And on a state and federal level, surveillance programs like the Bush administration's registry of people from Muslim majority countries led to the detention of thousands. Our guest today is someone who will help us understand why interfaith relationships are so crucial and how religious freedom is supposed to work, Dr. Bob Roberts, Jr. Dr. Bob Roberts, Jr. is the founder of GlocalNet, a nonprofit dedicated to mobilizing the church for transformation in the public square, founder and chairman of Global Ventures, Inc., and co-founder of Multi-Faith Neighbors Network, a multi-faith organization committed to creating international religious freedom through intentional cross-cultural relationships. He's also currently the senior global pastor at Northwood Church and host of the Bold Love podcast. He is frequently called upon by the U.S. Department of State, United Nations, U.S. Islamic World Forum, World Economic Forum, ambassadors, international royal families, diplomats, policy leaders, and others for his groundbreaking work in this field. So I like to open every interview by reading to my guests something that they've written online. And so we scoured your social media and here's what we got on your Twitter. You say this, the church was meant to be the ultimate humanitarian, peacemaking, reconciling justice center in the world. Tell me about that. I was raised in a culture that believed in the Great Commission, Matthew 28. But we didn't know what Matthew 5, 6, and 7 were. Mm. So we're going to win the world to Jesus, but we don't even know what the kingdom of God is. Mm. Jesus came preaching and bringing the kingdom of God, not the Great Commission. And so if you're going to understand the kingdom of God, you got to read the Sermon on the Mount, and then you got to read the parables of Matthew. And it comes to its climax in Matthew 25. He says, I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was naked. I was homeless. I was in prison. I, 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 I was hurting. And when we do things to those people, we're doing them to Jesus. Every single one of those has to do with humanitarian, peacemaking, justice, every single one of them. 
But I was raised in a culture that saw the gospel as getting me into heaven, Mm. but didn't see heaven on earth at all. Mm. And so I had to get saved after I was already saved. Mm. And I've had many conversions because the gospel was bigger. And so what I'm trying to say to people is, if if your faith is bringing no value to the community, other than just stamping people's passports to heaven, you don't have a very big gospel. And furthermore, what right do you have to speak into the issues of society? Mm. We ought to be blessing not just Christians, but non-Christians. We shouldn't view people who don't know Jesus as projects to dunk them in the baptistry to say, we baptized 6,000 people this year in the world a better place. Well, let's check it. Is the divorce rate going down? Are people getting educated? Is hunger being eradicated? Are we loving people of different races more? Do we believe in religious freedom for Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, Hindus, and and everyone else? I just feel like there's a far bigger gospel Mm -hmm. than we have allowed ourselves to imagine. I am loving you right now, Dr. Bob, because this is just something, obviously, that's very passionate to me, but also like the generation that I'm serving. I'm a college professor, and I see it so much in my young people is they keep questioning, what do I do with this disconnect between my faith and what I'm actually seeing in my community and how my faith is intersecting with what I'm seeing in the community. So what do you what do you feel like? Do you feel like there's a disconnect in most of our churches between what you just talked about, this gospel that we teach or that we speak and that we're not necessarily following? Heather, you're describing the revival that's happening right now in America. Mm. People are freaking out because the nuns aren't going to church anymore. Mm. God had to get them out so they could find Jesus afresh. Mm. And they see the disconnects. I think everybody sees the disconnects. We turn church into the Sunday event. Mm-hmm. We measure a church by how good the preacher and how good the music is, and we don't think about it the rest of the week. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel that spread around the world. That wasn't the message of the apostles. It was the message that you're going to accept Jesus and follow him and this kingdom that you're part of now is going to spread and radically impact. So I think the disconnect is very real and they see it. And the reason we don't, I'm 63. The reason people my age and even old people in their forties don't see it is because we were raised with a particular paradigm of what ministry is all about. But I think people that have been born today all the way up into their mid thirties, they see the gospel as fundamentally different. And here's what I think. I think they see it for two reasons. Number one, We did such a good job of teaching them about what a Christian is supposed to look like and live, Mm. but a lousy job of practicing it. And the second thing is, I really believe America is destined for another great awakening. It's just not going to come through my generation. It's going to come through people in their 20s and their 30s. It's going to be like Finney. And I know Finney, it's debatable. Some of his theology wasn't as solid as Wesley and Whitfield and some of the rest of those guys. At the same time, no one did more for social causes and revival than Finney. Child labor laws, just go down the list. He spent more on child labor laws than the entire federal government had in in its budget in the 1840s. So I I think it's a disconnect, but I think what's going on, it's a realignment. This is what church ought to look like. The Welsh revival, another example. When people accepted Christ, education, not, not just accepted Christ, When that revival came, what happens is people begin to get educated. The bars are closed. Life is changing. Everything, society is fundamentally changed. 
Same thing as the early church. Society is fundamentally changed. And I think what we did as American Christians were pragmatists. And we were raised with this idea, we just get enough Christians, we'll change the world. Not if we don't have the right kind. Mm. We plant enough churches. Boy, that'll change everything. I'm in Dallas, Texas. We have thousands of churches. Our divorce rate, our crime rates, some of the worst in the country. More places of worship and more Christians do not a Christian culture make, contrary to what people think. As a matter of fact, when Christians are in a minority, we generally do a far better job of living the gospel out because we feel that sense of minority, and I'm a representative of Jesus in a place that people don't know him. As I'm listening to you, I'm reading this book right now. I know you're familiar with it. It's Eat This Book by Eugene Peterson. I'm hearing so much in everything that you're saying that he's talking about in Eat This Book and how he wants people to truly live out the call of the gospel. You are a pastor of Northwood Church in Texas, but you've worked with groups and leaders worldwide and internationally. My question for you is, as someone who works with people who believe and are quite different from you, how do you engage with people who see the world, their whole worldview is different? How do you engage with them in a meaningful way? Have fun with them. Hmm. You just party with them. You, you enjoy them. You're fascinated. You're curious. It's not about you and how you feel. You focus more on who is that person and what makes them tick. And you're legitimately interested in them. And so you ask them questions. They're intrigued by those questions. And the next thing you know, they're asking you questions. I work in places that would be considered closed countries. And yet the top leaders of those countries are constantly asking about my faith in Jesus. But when I go into those countries, I don't go in as Pastor Bob Roberts, about to do a big revival meeting. Everybody come hear me preach. No, I'm, I'm an everyday person who has people in his church who likes to serve the least of these, wherever they are in the world. And so they're intrigued that we want to come there and not do religious stuff, but just serve mm. them. Now stop and think about that. Why do we think Healthcare, education, poverty alleviation. Why do we think those are not religious things? Right. Those are the epitome of, of, of quote, religious life and our faith life. And so I, I think the way that you do that is you listen a lot. I'm a loud guy. And so a lot of times <laughs> I take young pastors I mentor to go with me, and they're shocked when I go into new places. Bob, you're quiet. Yeah. You got to be, you got to listen more than you talk. Yes. You, go in, you see them for who they are. And here's what I don't do. I never go to meet somebody because I want to build a relationship. They're not interested in that. Why some Muslim leader in some country around the world or Jewish leader or Hindu, why, why do they want a Buddhist or communist or atheist? Why, why do they want to meet with a Baptist pastor from Texas? Are you kidding me? But what I find is something in the common public square that they need. And how can I serve you? You have this need. I, I just want to serve you. And that's what we do. And then it's the same thing as Jesus. He heals people. He feeds them. But not everybody he healed and not everybody he fed followed him. Mm -hmm. But he did so because of another really big problem we've got in evangelicalism. The Catholics really taught this, and we evangelicals took it to the next level. We're so obsessed with original sin that we have forgotten about original creation, which means we're created in the image of God. So my perspective has to be, wow, 
I'm talking to somebody who was created in the image of God, that God created before the foundations of the world. What was he thinking when he made this person? What is it about this person that's beautiful? But if you have this mindset that says, oh, we're all sorry sinners, and we are. But if that's the first thing you think about when you see somebody, oh, you're in darkness, you're hopeless, you scuzzball. Yeah. So I think you look at people in light of how God created them, his original intent, instead of first original sin. And then you look at them in terms of how can I serve you? And then you just get to know them. I text all the time with this world leader who's a close friend. He's in the news all the time. Most people don't know that I know him. And when I show up and he pulls me out of the crowd, come on, Bob. How the heck do you know that guy? Exactly the same way that I'm talking to you now. Mm. And so we worked together. We became friends. And now he's got a small Instagram account of 150 people. I'm on that Instagram account. And he's always, you know, with the rest of his family members, I'm close to them. Mm. You know, I love them. They're, they're leaders in a particular part of the world and a good bit of the world for that matter. But I never went to say, I want to be your buddy. And I'm from Texas and we're really bad about that. Mm. I just won't be your friend. And we don't even know what friendship means. We think it's you like me, I like you. Give me a hug, you big, you know, hunking person. <laughs> you know, no, man, get to know people. Yeah. We get close to people really quick. Well, not really close. We get social really quick. Mm. They go much slower, but it's far deeper. Talk to me about that because you grew up in a small town in East Texas, but Today, you've worked with the U.S. State Department, United Nations, U.S. Islamic World Forum, World Economic Forum, different ambassadors, international royal families and diplomats. Tell us about this journey. How did you get from point A to point B that we hear and get to watch you living in right now? Did you know every bad thing that happens to us, it's God's preparing us for our future. Mm. So you can look at the bad junk in your life and say, Where was God? And it was horrible. Or you can look at it and say, all right, what's the good that came out of that? What what did God teach me in the midst of that? What are some lessons I learned? So I stuttered so bad when God called me to preach. My parents grieved. My dad's a Baptist preacher. They grieved. They thought, Lord, you've called the wrong son. And, And there were reasons I stuttered, stress and things that had happened in my life and so forth. And and we moved from little town to little town. And in East Texas, every little town, if you don't go all the way back to the founding of that town, you're an outsider. So my dad would go to these little churches, grow up to two or three hundred, you know, a little church of 30 or 40. And we'd have to go to another little town. So constantly I'm having to fight to be accepted, fight to Mm. get to know people. Those were good lessons. I was in some situations with some people who were challenging uh, to live with. And so I had to learn to read facial expressions and emotions. I had to learn not just to hear what somebody says, but how they said it. All of that junk that I went through left me with an incredible sense of intuition and the ability to read people. Now, I don't always get it right, but it left me with that ability. And so God took the junk in my life that enables me to talk to people that other people see that are challenging and to get inside their world more than I try to help them understand my world. And there's a set, so that's the first thing. Here's the second thing that happened. I was raised believing in the Great Commission, passionate about it. I understood the Bible. I understood the gospel. I understood the evangelism and the forward motion of of the gospel going into the ends of the earth. Here's the problem. 
I knew nothing about the world. Mm. Nothing. And I was raised in a culture where you don't need to know anything about the world. Just go out and share the gospel. Well, that's stupid. I mean, that's like saying you're going to go speak in English in France and tell people about Jesus. Right. And so what happened, my wife and I wanted to be missionaries, but they wouldn't appoint us because of some health issues. Supposedly, my wife was going to have to have all these surgeries she didn't have to have. But I still felt that call to be a missionary. It never left. And then one day it hit me. I was reading the Great Commission. And I thought, whoa, this was for everybody, not just preachers and pastors and missionaries. And so our church adopted Vietnam. So how do you go work in a close country like Vietnam? So what we did was we took the jobs of our people, too long to tell you the whole story. We took the jobs of our people because through a fluke, I met one of the top leaders of that country. I knew nothing about diplomacy, protocol, nothing. Just through a fluke of somebody who accepted Christ, their dad, I got to know them. He introduced me to all the leaders of their country. Hmm. And through that, he said, yeah, help us out. And so we started mobilizing our members by their jobs. And so in Hanoi, Vietnam, I learned how cities work. And I began to understand how they were put together in domains and sectors and infrastructure. And I began to realize human resources and how people work. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is what the kingdom is about. This is broader than Sunday event. This is what we need to be discipling people for. So they taught me philosophy, urban studies. But after about 15 years, we were asked to also go into Afghanistan after 9-11, and I had no desire to do that. Mm. But we did it. It's a long story. And I wound up working with Muslims who were just as passionate about their faith as I mm -hmm. was mine. Mm -hmm. They challenged my theology. Forget the fact I'd gone to seminary and had all these degrees and everything else. When you're being asked by Muslims, you really worship three gods, don't you? Or why do you believe Jesus died on the cross? It, What's wrong with God that he would kill his own son? Mm -hmm. I mean, let me tell you something. The questions that Muslims ask me shake my theology more than all the theology books I ever read. So I started doing theology in reverse. Mm. And so my theology did two things. Number one, it narrowed dramatically. Everything that was speculative went out the window. So, for example, I just believe Jesus is coming back. Everything else is clutter and dangerous. Mm. Election, I was raised reformed. I'll let God figure out how he did that. Why am I going to go into that and spend that? Who's elected? Who's not? What a goofy thing to spend all my time. Just let's exalt the sovereignty of God mm. versus God has to do this and God has to do that. And so what, what it meant was everything that was speculative that cannot be proven, I just said it's going on the periphery. And what became central was Jesus, the Trinity, the Bible, loving God, and loving people. Everything has to fit in those six things. If they don't, then you're building an apparatus out of speculation. So that's how I got into all that. This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief, an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19, and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? 
the answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community, you partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org slash viraljesus today. Talk to us about the deepest ways you've been challenged to keep seeing your call, even if your present surroundings aren't revealing that to you. Have you had experiences like that where you feel like, I know God has this plan, and yet everything in front of you says that there's no plan? Yeah. Let me tell you an interesting story. Yeah. Uh, This is not why I wound up going to Vietnam, but my dad, by the time he was 23, there were four of us kids. And he pastored a little church in Corsicana, Texas, and drove an hour and a half every day to go to seminary in Fort Worth. And my mom uh, would have me go with my dad so she could get rid of one kid. So I had to go instead <laughs> as a five-year-old, perfect in seminary classes and not get in trouble. And wow. in the rotunda of the Southwestern Seminary, there was this map of the world you walk in. And I was always see the world. Well, sometimes when we would drive, there was this man named Jim Gale who was a missionary to Vietnam that my dad would ride with every day. And God called him to be a missionary to Vietnam. And I remember all of us little kids, we were crying because I'm 63. And this was in the 60s. The war was going on. It was 66 when he went. We were afraid he was going to die. And and many bad things happened to him and his family while they were there, but they made it. And when I started working in Vietnam, the way that we did, frankly, candidly, my dad would get upset. Bobby, you know, you need to be preaching. What are you doing over there? You're just passing out stuff and you're helping them, but you need to tell them about Jesus. Well, I am dad. It's just one-on-one. And it's it's not that my dad didn't affirm or love or appreciate. It's just a different thing. Right. Well, this missionary was a close friend of my dad's and and he'd kind of feel the same way, but he didn't say a whole lot because he so saw something. When we first went to Vietnam the first time, we were going to do the traditional stuff, dine and dash evangelism, work with an underground missionary. But when I became friends with that top leader, I, we couldn't do that. I mean, he'd get the missionaries in trouble, he'd get the church, everybody else. So what happened was, and you would be interested about what you talk about, we had to go above ground. So all of our language, how we communicated, we were now doing missions in the public square, Mm. not behind the scenes with Christians, but in the public square with non-Christians. So everything we wrote about, all of our social media, all of the articles, we had to write it not with, we're writing to Christians, but we're writing to people that are going to read this that are government leaders, other people that are Vietnamese. How do we write? How do we describe this? So we go in and we begin to doing all this and we faced a lot of criticism from other Christians and mission organizations. You've compromised the gospel, but we didn't. Mm. I just didn't preach. I just didn't start churches. We just mobilized our members to serve and people would ask questions and one-on-one they'd decide to follow Jesus. And instead of starting Northwood churches in Vietnam, we would just hand them over to the Vietnamese church. Instead of looking like the Vietnamese, those poor little uneducated, inferior people, we viewed them as the body of Christ. So when somebody accepts Christ, that's who we're going to connect them to. So it was hard. I mean, we faced a tremendous amount of criticism and 
To this day, we do. I mean, Sunday, the chief political officer for Vietnam was in our church. He's a close friend of mine. We deal with issues of religious freedom in Vietnam. I work with him in our State Department. We have such a close relationship. He's finished his tour. The new guys who's in charge, and these are the guys that make sure the communists are really communist in the office. He wanted to bring this guy to Texas, had him in church with us Sunday because he said, this guy will work with you. He understands our country, but he's also a passionate Christian. So, so this is what it evolved to. Well, in 2014, that missionary that I used to ride as a little boy to the seminary with, he wrote my dad a long letter, and then he took a picture of the letter, and he sent it to me. He wanted me to know what he sent my dad. My dad and I have never talked about this letter. Hmm. But he sent the letter, and he said, Bob, I know you're concerned about Bobby Jean. What a name, huh? I'm from East Texas. <laughs> Bobby Jean Roberts Jr., what a name. He said, I know you're concerned about Bobby Jean, and I have been too. But his work is all over that country. There's not a place, there's not a hospital, there's not an education facility. And what he has done has not just helped the Vietnamese, it's not just helped his members, but literally other Christians and other mission agencies are benefiting from the philosophy and work that he did in Hanoi. What he did was exactly what needed to be done, celebrated. But here's the problem we've got, Heather. We want to follow God and have instant success and accolades. Yeah. Come on, where's that in the Bible? Right. And, and I'm convinced, you talk about Eugene Peterson. I love, I love his book, a long, uh, a long Obedience in the Same Direction. Where's the faith that says, I'm going to be an Abraham. I'm moving through this land. Right. I'm kind of by myself. There's a few people encouraging me, but I'm kind of by myself. I mean, to me, that's what the life of faith is. It's not, in the name of Jesus, come out, evil spirit, or, or grow ear, or something else like that. That's all fine and good. But I think the life of faith is, God, I'm walking with you. Mm. And I'm going to go into this dark place. And I'm going to love these people. I get tired of the way Christians talk about darkness. I don't like the way Christians talk about San Francisco. I love San Francisco. And I hear a lot of Christians talk, oh, I feel darkness when I go into that place. <laughs> Man, you need to come Dallas. You'll feel real darkness. <laughs> I mean, we'll blow your head off in a minute. We've all got 20 guns apiece. I mean, <laughs> why is it some sins make us feel darker than other sins? Interesting, yeah. So anyhow. So yeah, I think what you're asking is really a description of what the life of faith is all about. Yeah. And here's what I would say. Most of us want to be uh, Rockefeller. But God's will for most of us is to be a Van Gogh. Mm. And man, there's so much fun in being a Van Gogh. Now, the problem is you're not going to get to cash in your chips until you go to heaven. And then when you go to heaven, you're going to turn around and give them right back to Jesus, according to Revelation. So I, I think you've got to be obsessed with Jesus being your fulfillment and not your identity yeah. in your ministry. And that's what we do. We reverse it. Talk to me about what this looks like for you as a pastor online. How does your church use social media to engage with the public forum? Oh, man, that's a critical question. I have something I teach pastors. We do at our church. We call it one conversation. See, most Christians have two or three conversations. I'm going to tweet this for my Christian friends. I'm going to tweet this, maybe a Bible verse for, for people that are going to hell or some of my relatives that are really bad Christians. I'm, I'm going to tweet this because of my political view. No, 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 no. 
view your life as one message. Mm. So when you tweet, who's your audience? Well, you got some Christians, but you've got non-Christians. So every tweet that I tweet, I tweet it realizing a Muslim, a Jew, a communist, a Hindu, a Buddhist, a diplomat, a, a U.S. government official, a, a Middle Eastern official, they're going to read it. So what do I want to say and how do I want to say it? If you go back and look at my tweets, this is too much work. But a lot of my tweets that are about Jesus and Christian tweets, you'll be amazed at how many Muslims like them and retweet them. Mm. That used to freak me out when they did that. I thought, dude, what are you retweeting me, what I said about God for? I'm no Muslim. But when you speak in such a way that you realize the whole world is listening, we got a major disconnect. We, we, we talk about platforms, but we keep saying the same thing we were saying before those platforms came along. So there's no difference in how we talk. Man, when you realize the whole world is listening, then what I say matters. Yes. And how I say it is critical. So I've got to think about how am I going to say it in such a way that I can be honest about what's going on, but I can also have some hope in there? Do it without trashing people, but not running away from what needs to be said. So, so one of the things that we do is how we talk about that. Before people go to Vietnam, we try to talk to them about your social media, Facebook, what you say, and so forth. You know, there's people I will not work with in the world that want to work with me a lot, with Muslims, but I won't. And for one simple reason, maybe they love Jesus and they're cool people, but I go to their website and it trashes Muslims. Mm. Why, why do I want to work? If, if I want to love Muslims and show the love of Jesus, why do I want to work with someone who says they're demonic, they're mean, they're evil, they're destroying the world? we got to do away with them. Come on. I mean, where's that stuff about love God, love your neighbor? How about your right. enemy? Right. So I think you've got to think about how are you going to say it? I think you should say challenging things. But how are you going to say it? Hmm. Here's something else I learned. I have to deal with extremists. I'm in crazy places all over the world, Muslim extremists. And for the past five years, there's, there really are Christian extremists. Right. And one of the things that, that somebody who's far more advanced than I says is, if you want to keep somebody an extremist, then trash them, attack them, and tell them how wrong they are. So you just push them deeper into who they are. If you really want to communicate— Challenge the behavior, but speak to who they could be. Mm. Speak to who in their heart they really want to be. Talk to us about the premise of your podcast, Uncommon Journey to Bold Love. What is that about? So I've got all these friends that are non-Christians. Literally, I'm not kidding you. This is no exaggeration. Some of my very best friends are not Christians. Uh, There's an imam who prays for me. my, My knee just got replaced. We go all over the world together. We work together. I love this man. And, uh, you know, a lot of people say, Bob, I want to meet your friends. And so I began, how do I do that? Because number one, I don't want them to say something stupid or, (laughs) you know, I don't know. I I just, the majority of my time is now with non-Christians, probably Mm. 80% of it, of what I do. When I travel the world, I don't go meet with other Christians. As a matter of fact, I rarely meet with other Christians unless it's on the agenda. Because I'm traveling with non-Christians. By the way, I won't get into it, but missions in the 21st century, it's not something we do to people. It's something we do with people. Mm. Let that sink in. But anyhow, that's a, that's for another podcast. But I- anyhow, I think uh, what we have to do, 
when we build these relationships with people is to live our life with them in such a way that they're part of our family. See, I was raised, you just dust your feet off. No, that ain't what it's talking about at all. You keep loving them. What do you do? Dust your feet off from your kids who don't follow Jesus or your parents who don't follow right. Jesus? Man, you keep loving them. Right. So I think that's what you have to do. You tweeted recently, to love your enemies forces you to look at those you fear, those that you would see as insignificant, those hard to trust. It is the cure that stops rampant cultural sin and phobias from racism to Islamophobia and envy. This one little extreme command is huge and often absent today. You want to unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I think the most radical command that Jesus ever gave was to love your enemies. Mm. Now, if you read the New Testament, all the past, love God, love your neighbor, love your family, love one another, love the body of Christ, love your enemies. Who's left out? No one. Mm. We do not know how to love our enemies. We know how to fight them. Yeah. And people, here's what, here's most evangelicals take on love your enemies. Well, you love them, but you don't have to like them. You love them, but you have to stand against them. No, there's a verse God gave me, a very profound verse. I'd never seen it this way in my life before, but it was when I was getting some criticism and I'm, I, I was spending the majority of my time with non-Christians. And it was simply this verse. Are you ready for this? Yeah, this I am. Rock your world. Combine this verse, love your enemy. With this verse. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Mm. See, we think the table for our enemies is to say we win. Yeah. No. The table for our enemies, for those of us that follow Jesus, is for us to say we love. Mm. Man, I feel Jesus bumps all over me. Yeah. Because because the reality is, that's how we change. Yeah. I'm friends with some really bad people. Really bad people. Scary people. They scare me. <laughs> but when they see me, they hug me. I don't talk about it. I can't talk about it. What's going on? Hey, Bob, would you pray for us tonight? Sometimes I'm sitting up late and they'll be telling me stories from the Quran and I'm telling them stories about Jesus. The biggest command we're missing is to love your enemies. Here's what else is cool. If you love your enemies, Heather, you love everybody else. Mm. Just think about it. Love God, your highest love. Love your enemies, your lowest love. Everyone else. And here's what's cool. When you learn to love your first enemy, the rest fall like dominoes. Mm. So the first enemy that I felt like I had to learn were the communist Vietnamese. My dad buried soldiers. I had to register for the draft. It stopped right before I had to go, but I thought I might die there. Mm -hmm. I had to learn to love Vietnamese. I didn't like them. They were communists. They killed 58,000. But I knew nothing about their story. Mm -hmm. I knew nothing about the 2 million Vietnamese that died. I knew nothing about what the French had done to them. I knew nothing about how Roosevelt and Ho Chi Minh actually were going to work out a relationship. But when Truman comes into power, instead of saying, hey, French, you cannot go back there and colonize them, he let them go back and do the same thing to them that the Nazis were doing to the Jews. Let that sink in. See, I knew my story. I didn't know their story. Yeah. And so when you, when you love people, it's not that you agree with them at all, but you go, hey, I get that. And then when I begin to learn to love Muslims, man, I'm scared of Muslims. They're going to cut my head off, and I don't want to do that. 
and I'm probably closer to Muslims than I am any other group on the face of the earth. I mean, I fight for their religious freedom in America. Why? Because I agree with their religion? Not at all. I want to baptize every one of them. I do so because you have to own your mind. Religious freedom is about mind. It's about do you have the right to think for yourself, to experience what you understand God to be? That has to be there. When you love your enemies, it disciples you like nothing else. It reframes your mind in how you think. So I begin to love Muslims. And I remember when our church started reaching out to Muslims about 12 years ago in the Metroplex, I thought everybody would be excited. Are you kidding? I had people freaking out on me. They loved it when I worked with Muslims around the world. I thought they'd love it when mm. I worked with the Muslims that were near me. Uh-uh. Mm. We started get, getting called the Muslims Church. We lost a few hundred people. And so when we went through that, I thought, well, we need to go ahead. By that time, our church was starting to become gradually multi-ethnic. But I said, you know what? We need to really go full bore. So we intentionally desegregated our church, our staff, our elders, everything. Lost another few hundred people. Here's what I discovered. People pick and choose who they want to love, mm -hmm. not a Christian. Mm. I don't have a choice as a follower of Jesus, am I going to love you or not? My only choice is, am I going to obey Jesus or not? Mm -hmm. And nothing will shift you like loving someone outside your culture, outside your values, because you're having to get inside their world. And so then what you're doing, this is cool, Heather, you start thinking about the gospel different. Now, how do I talk about Jesus to you? And no four spiritual laws or Roman road or evangelism explosion presentation is going to work in the 21st century. You're going to have to listen to people, know a few scriptures, and think, and know how to have a conversation about Jesus instead of preaching a little sermonette. And this isn't a bad thing. I would rather somebody speak from their heart about Jesus, about how to follow him, than to hear somebody who has a perfect theological message give the points, but miss the person. I'm, I'm so excited having this conversation just because it's so easy today. And I know so many people are doing it. We're looking around and we feel like there's so many leaders who have fallen and we have all these bad examples. And it just feels like, well, where is God and what's happening with the church? And I get to have conversations with people like you. And I'm so encouraged and inspired to see what God is doing right now and will continue to do with us. I asked people on Twitter um, if they wanted to submit a question to you and a cross-culture Christian who's Kevin Wilson, Kevin Spencer Wilson, he's been on the show before. He was wondering, what are the best practices, disciplines, habits that allow you to simultaneously run your organization and pastor? That's a great question. So I would say, let's return back to the New Testament church. Uh, Paul didn't have a tape ministry. Uh, he didn't have, uh, I'm sorry, I'm showing my age now. <laughs> Paul didn't have a, a, a MP3 ministry. And, <laughs> it, you know, so let's listen to his CDs. It was about living the gospel, him as a tent maker. See, I think we've screwed up the church in America so that you really hired me to preach. What is that about? That's what God right. wants the church to do. Show up in here, you preach. No, he doesn't. That's why we've got huge churches and no impact on our city. So I, I think part of it is going back to the biblical model of what church is all about and say, the question of success, here's, here's what I say. It's not how's my church, but how's my city? Mm. And so I'm discipling people in the word of God to live the gospel in a specific context of my city and my world. So how are my members living out the gospel in the domains of society 
in our city and in the world. When you get that, people won't have problems with you working around the world. But here's what else is going to happen. Most preachers, their outside ministry from their church is still a preaching ministry. They move from preaching to their church to preaching at all the conferences. Right, right. I submit, preach at your church to make disciples, to engage the city, and then become a peacemaker, become a humanitarian who serves in the name of Jesus all over the world. And your ministry now is mobilizing people to serve in the name of Jesus. I think preaching is killing the church because we are so obsessed with great sermons that we can do so little with. I would rather somebody give a phenomenal explanation Six minutes on this is what that verse means and another 20 minutes on here's how we're going to live it out this week in your family, in your life, and in our community. I guarantee you we would learn more. So instead of taking 30 minutes to really have six minutes worth of profound content, give that six minutes of profound content and here's how we're going to live it out. At Jared Stacy asks you, are there any common misunderstandings of or objections to religious freedom that you encounter from Christians, particularly in the U.S.? Yes. Uh, number one, religious freedom is for me. I don't meet a lot of Christians who are excited about religious freedom for Muslims mm-hmm. or Hindus mm-hmm. or Buddhists or, or, or atheists or whatever else. So that's the number one thing I would say. Uh, your religious freedom is only as good as the freedom of the other person beside you to have religious freedom. Yes. Here's a second thing I would say. A lot of people have the perception that the rest of the world does not care about religious freedom. That's not true. It's changing dramatically. It started about 25 years ago. You're seeing a snowball effect right now, but it really started about 25 years ago, and it's been building, and you're going to see it continue to build. I talk to Muslims all the time, all over the world, leaders. They believe in religious freedom. I mean, Muhammad Al-Alisa, the president of the Muslim World League, for God's sakes, is coming to our church with a document that promotes tolerance and religious freedom. He's one of the top Muslims in the world, top three or four in the world. He's coming to our Baptist evangelical church in Texas to say, hey, we believe this too. Mm -hmm. Is it perfect? No. Do they have a ways to go? Yeah, but I would submit to you that we Christians have a ways to go as well. In our understanding of religious freedom, a lot of times we want to force on non-Christians to have the same views of marriage and and life and other things that may be true for my faith, but it's not true for their faith. Right. And so what we're going to say is now, this is what my faith teaches. I should never force my practice of faith on someone who's not a Christian. I don't think we understand that as religious freedom. And it is. And so you're pushing your values on somebody else. Dr. Bob Roberts Jr. is the senior global pastor at Northwood Church and host of the Bold Love podcast. I have a final question for you. The show is called Viral Jesus. And so I've been asking people this question to close. Virtually all credible historians, Christian and non-Christian alike, agree that there is plenty of evidence that a man named Jesus actually lived and walked on this earth 2,000 years ago, how can we, 2,000 years later, best communicate who Jesus was and what his mission is today? Go love somebody that you're really afraid of. Don't, no, I'm not talking about a family member. Well, maybe some of you have scary family members. <laughs> but I, but I'm, I'm thinking about that Muslim that lives down the street from you, uh, that person who who's a different political party than you. Yeah. And don't go to convert them or change them or tell them where they're wrong. Just say, hey, you know what? 
you and I don't necessarily see things eye to eye, but I see you here and I, I respect you as somebody created in the image of God. I just want to be your friend. Could, could, could we go out and drink some coffee together? I'm not kidding you. Heather, you may think that's stupid. That's too trite. That's what's missing. Mm-hmm. We have people writing whole books about people of different religions or others, and they're not friends of any of those. So I think the best way of people seeing Jesus is how you love them. Somebody, I was with a group of Muslims the other day, and one of them said, if you're going to be a Christian, be a Christian like Bob. Now, he wants to convert us all, but he really does love us. <laughs> yeah. And even if he doesn't convert us, he's going to keep on loving us. So, so I would just say, love that unlikely person. Mm. And, and here's what's going to happen. Heather, here's what's crazy. When you do that, you're going to change more than they are. Oh, Heather, you're going to discover this Jesus you never knew because you're going to be loving like Jesus now. Your enemy, that person you're afraid of. I remember one time I was in a particular country and I was told, don't you dare get in a car with this guy. And I didn't want to because I was scared of him, but I'd met him somewhere else and he wanted to take me somewhere. And he sees me, and he grabs me, and he hugs me. He said, man, I've been waiting. Are you ready to have some fun, Bob? We're going to have a blast. So I get in the car with him with all these motorcycle cops behind us, and I thought, Jesus, I may never be seen again. (laughs) And I thought, for me that day, loving like Jesus, even if it cost me my life, loving like Jesus, was hanging out with that guy, laughing my guts out with him, laughing at our tribes and our cultures. And I think when we love on the edge like that, I think it makes God grin in profound ways. Thanks, Dr. Bob Roberts Jr. for joining us for this episode. We like to end every episode with a little segment I call Growing Viral, and this is where I give you some direct strategies you could implement into your real life that will help you be a better communicator and connector both online and off. Here is your Growing Viral homework. Here are some things you can do at your campus or your church to help strengthen our interfaith relationships. Ask your pastor or chaplain if it could be possible to organize a panel discussion on a subject of common interest with varying faith demographics represented. So maybe the topic is literally what religious freedom is supposed to look like or how we can better serve our community. The purpose is simply to build relationships and learn about each other and how our faith impacts our service. You can watch a documentary film about people from another faith than your own or read a book that could help broaden your perspective. We aren't looking to change our own beliefs, but it's important to make room for respecting the faith traditions of other people. Dr. Bob Roberts Jr. said, religious freedom is important, and I agree with him. (laughs) 
Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. Next episode, we talk to co-founder and president of the And Campaign, Justin Gibney, about social reform and loving our neighbor. I love growing with you guys on Viral Jesus. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's MA in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu/hdl.